Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got another news show for you this week. Hope everybody in the U.S. had a good 4th of July. Uh, hopefully a safe 4th of July as well. And, uh, you know, kind of as I was pondering our 4th of July celebration and celebration of independence, I kind of got a little nostalgic and wrote up an article on my blog and my newsletter, which if you're watching those, you would have already gotten, uh, kind of talking about how we might be sometimes taking our freedoms for granted and how we got to protect those. So uh, anyway, I'll get to that later in the show. <laughs> Let's not uh, give away the ending quite yet. Uh, I'm going to talk about an interesting consumer survey on online privacy and some data that I found interesting that I'll want to share. I'm going to talk about a case of pre-saving music. And if you're not, if you're not familiar with what that is, I honestly wasn't either. Uh, and even though you may not do it, I think this is an interesting story again, and it's something that kind of highlights where we're at today with the kind of information we give away for convenience. So I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about an interesting project from Mozilla, the folks that bring us Firefox, the web browser that I often recommend for most people. And it's kind of clever and maybe too clever by half. And uh, I'm not going to recommend anybody here do it, but I thought it was interesting to bring up and kind of talk about why they're doing it and, uh, and what, it, what it means. And finally, um, and this brings us back to the uh, subject I alluded to at the top of the show, there's an article from, I think, Forbes that we're going to talk about how many high-level people in the United States, law enforcement and other agencies got together last Wednesday to talk about how we're supposedly going dark and whether or not they need to consider, again, banning encryption that our government cannot crack. Uh, and that is a really big issue. And uh, also I want to spend a little time on that. And that will kind of lead into uh, my slightly different tip of the week. So let's get to it. All right. First up this week, there is a survey done by a company called Figleaf, which I think is kind of a funny name for a privacy survey. And uh, it's interesting in a couple of different ways. They did a survey of uh, several thousand people in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, but they also did one last year um, in March, March, March of 2018. Now, what I think maybe is most interesting is the the contrast between those two surveys. So let me read you uh, some excerpts from uh, an article from HelpNet Security, helpnetsecurity.com. And uh, it's entitled, Consumers Believe Privacy is Not Possible, Leading to a Change in Online Behavior. So uh, the article goes like this. 82% of online users in the U.S. and 75% in the U.K. are choosing to change the way they behave online, according to a new consumer survey by Figleaf. For these respondents, 74% say they sh that they're sharing less information online as a result. As for the 25% who indicated that recent privacy scandals have had no impact on their online behavior, the prevailing reasons were that they were either already highly protective of their information or that they had accepted a lack of privacy when engaging online. The survey follows a similar study conducted by Figleaf in March 2018 that queried more than 7,500 users in five different countries, the United States, United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Australia. In the initial 2018 study, which took place prior to the Cambridge Analytica Facebook fallout and subsequent privacy scandal stories, revealed 39% of users in the UK and the US did not believe online privacy was possible. Approximately one year later, that number was jumped to 68%, demonstrating a greater awareness among consumers of their online privacy, but also a significant loss of confidence in the ability to keep personal information private. 
And the CEO of Fig Leaf is quoted here saying, Without question, consumers are telling us that online privacy is important to them. However, far too many believe online privacy is difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. This attitude is resulting in individuals who are choosing to restrict their online their own on- online activity, which limits their personal freedom. Unfortunately, current tools do not give consumers the assurance they need that it is possible to control one's own online privacy. Unquote. The, the two studies also highlighted a significant discrepancy in consumers' views of how governments should be involved in online privacy. In 2018, 75% of all respondents thought governments should protect users' privacy, with 63% believing laws and regulations should be enacted as part of that effort. By 2019, however, only 6% thought privacy should be handled by the government. Instead, 21% of the companies involved receiving the information should be accountable to keep it private. 28% believed it was up to the individual person, and the majority of responses, 45%, considered it a joint responsibility between all three. Uh, Now we're quoting the COO of Figleaf. He says, uh, Regulation is a critical component of privacy, particularly as it relates to how individual companies can use and share someone's private information. Regulations, however, are in place primarily to penalize bad behavior of companies. They do not give consumers a practical way to manage their privacy on a daily basis. How many of us, for example, have requested our data to be deleted from a company's server? This is because regulations are not well understood by consumers, driving greater incentive for individuals to take matters into their own hands and ultimately leading to dissatisfaction and mistrust online, unquote. So I thought it was just kind of interesting to see how the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, had such a big impact. I really, honestly, this is the kind of effect I expected to have from the Edward Snowden revelations, which were the summer of 2013. And while there was a lot of media uproar about that, I I don't know that there was really that much difference in, uh, in consumers' behavior. Maybe... I don't know. Maybe the Cambridge Analytica thing was just like the last straw. Maybe there's just been enough scandals that that was finally a big enough one to uh, break the camel's back, so so to speak. I, I don't I don't know. Um, but it's interesting to me that that was. It seems to be maybe the event that caused people to really start shifting their their mood on privacy. And I and trust me, folks, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are I'm sure there are a lot of other scandals out there waiting to break, and we may never even hear. Uh, a lot of the things that are going on, unfortunately. Um, but I do think that privacy is going to start getting very important and it's going to start, uh, you're going to start seeing some regulations in the United States. I don't know how effective they'll be, uh, but it, you know, we're obviously trying and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but I do obviously believe that it's not just the government that needs to do this. Cause if this guy's right, um, you know, regulations are great, but what they really end up doing is give, you know, governments and other groups, you know, means to sue somebody if they screw up and they still have to catch them screwing up. You know, it, hopefully the penalties also were incentives to act accordingly. But, you know, the whole the whole marketplace, the whole, you know, modern online capitalism thing is all about monetizing things as much as possible. So, you know, until we put some rules of the road out there, there's zero incentive for a lot of these companies to guard your privacy because they can make money off of your data. So anyway, I thought the survey was interesting. Um, and, you know, telling that so many people now are believing that it's so that it's impossible, really, to guard your privacy. I don't think it's impossible, it's, but it is. It's hard and it needs to be easier. Next up, uh, this is a story for people that are, you know, using online streaming music services. This is, you know, we've you know, gotten away from the day where we own our music or own our movies anymore. We buy them from streaming services, even our books. Right. You know, we'd buy them from Kindle. In fact, uh, Microsoft. Uh, people got a rude awakening on this recently when Microsoft announced that it's going to close its, you know, digital bookstore. And from what I read, basically 
you don't own, unfortunately, you don't own these books. So all these books that you got, let's say from Microsoft, probably had built-in DRM or digital rights management, which means you could only play them as long as the Microsoft service is viable. And now that that service is going away, all those books basically disappear from your library. Now, I don't think it was a very popular service, which is probably why it's closing. But I mean, just think right now. I mean, if you, if some, for some reason, Amazon were just to get out of the Kindle book business, which I know I, I can't see that happening either, but let's just say they did all of a sudden, all the books that you bought on Kindle quite possibly would become unavailable to you, which just goes to show the point that you don't own that material anymore. And like, you know, when you bought a book or bought a CD or bought an LP or bought a DVD, um, and it's actually a little bit arguable there too, because modern Blu-rays come with all sorts of DRM crap on them too. Uh, but at least you had that physical copy in your hand. I mean, it's something you, you could hold and own. But, you know, there, are, there have been movie services, too, online movie services, too, where you've bought movies, and, and when they go away, it, all of a sudden, all the movies you bought go away, too. Now, I think in this case, Microsoft is trying to um, uh, compensate users in some way. Uh, I don't know if they're giving them their money back or what, but um, anyway, I'm, I've totally gone off <laughs> totally gone off in the weeds. But it's related to the story. So now that, you know, most people aren't buying their music anymore, they're signing up for streaming services like you know, Apple Music or Spotify uh, Pandora, some of these other services, you really don't own your music. Um, the upside is, is you automatically get access to everything in the catalog. So you don't have to buy individual thing and things anymore, individual music. Um, you know, if that service has that artist and has that album, you get it period. That's all there is to it. So it's a subscription model and, um, it's interesting. Um, I'm personally glad to have owned over 700 CDs uh, in my day, and I still kind of and I still own that music. But uh, anyway, uh, so this article is about uh, some privacy concerns with this pre-saving thing, and let me just read this article from the Guardian, and it will explain what I'm talking about. Pre-saving albums and singles is an increasingly common part of the promotional process for big music releases, but many users do not realize they are paying for that access with their personal data, a report has warned. A pre-save is the streaming music equivalent of a pre-order. Before a big release hits services such as Spotify or Apple Music, fans are encouraged to save the album to their library, ensuring it will be immediately available the second it is launched. Promoted through mailing lists, social media accounts, and artist websites, a pre-save typically involves the fan clicking a link to quote, quote unquote, sign in with Spotify, for example, to enable the record label to automatically save the album to their user account on the streaming service. Uh, but the access granted to the label goes far beyond simply adding tracks to a music library. And industry publication Billboard has warned to pre-save a new Little Mix single. Now that's in caps, Little Mix. That's I'm. <laughs> showing i'm showing my age here i'm sure that that is some very popular band right now that i've just never heard of so insert beatles or whatever though i guess or whatever your favorite band is though of course they're not putting out new albums so anyway but you get the point some popular new band is coming out with a new single for instance so to pre-save a new single for instance users are asked to give sony's music 17 permissions including the continuous ability to view their entire library, what music they're playing, and the device they're playing it on, as well as their email address and who they follow on the device. Only one permission to add and remove items to your library is actually needed to pre-save an item. But uh, So basically, they're asking for 16 more than they needed. Um, the benefits of a pre-save for the user are sometimes unclear, since it's just as easy to save an album once it's already out, and there is no risk of digital streaming services selling out of a release. But the benefits for the labels are clear. Access to significant ongoing information about the music tastes of fans, which could be used to shape future signings, personalized marketing, and keep an eye on upcoming trends. 
And then uh, this is a quote from the Billboard report. It says, pre-save campaigns, which boost the first week listening that can drive strong chart debuts, quickly become a music business marketing staple after Spotify added the feature as part of its 2017 update to its API, the software that allows online programs to share data. But the feature has also come become a way from major labels and sometimes other rights holders to get data on listeners. Unquote. Not every platform is ripe for this use. Apple Music limits the amount of information labels can get from the platform and prevents them from reading users' emails even with permission. All right, so that's the end of the article. And of course, I had to put that last little one in there because, you know, as you know, I'm an Apple fan. And while I've always been an Apple fan, in recent years, it's become a really big deal for me that Apple is one of the very few companies that is really trying and not always succeeding, but at least trying to protect user privacy and, and collect as little data as possible and share even less. So um, anyway, so the upshot of this article is, uh, even though if you're not a Spotify customer and you don't find yourself, you know, pre-saving some hot new release from from some band, um, like me, because all the music I listen to is the, is probably at least 10 years old if not, and, and much older. Um, but, you know, my daughters, I'm sure, are probably doing this. They're on Spotify and Apple Music. So uh, when you do this and you click some link to pre-save this somewhere buried in some privacy policy or an agreement or something, when you do this, you're giving away all sorts of access, letting these, um, music labels track all sorts of stuff that you're doing. I mean, it's, that's pretty private stuff. I mean, basically see all the music you have in your library and all your playlists and who your friends are and, you know. Is it worth it? Definitely not. As this article points out, it's a streaming service. There's not, there's, there's no scarcity. You're not going to, you know, go to Spotify and say, Oh, I'm sorry. If you wanted to buy that single today, we're all sold out. It's a streaming service. There's, there's an infinite supply. So all you really need to do is set a calendar reminder, uh, for when this thing is supposed to get released. And then, you know, when that thing pops up, you, you go add it to your library. That's all there is to it. Instead of, you know, doing this slightly more convenient thing of saying, yes, give it to me as soon as it's ready. And then giving away all this information on yourself. So again, I know a lot of my listeners are probably not doing this, but to me, the, the moral of this story and like so many of the other ones I'm covering today is, you know, privacy versus convenience. I mean, and security versus convenience, but in this case, privacy, you know, we're, we're, they're coming up with these clever ways to get us to give away our data and give away our privacy, uh, in return for these convenience features. Uh, and so we just have to be really careful when these things come up that we, that we think about what these things are and actually drill down and see what some of the privacy policies are, uh, when we're clicking these, yes, I agree links. All right. Next up, I want to talk about Mozilla. That's the company, the organization that brings you Firefox, my personal favorite web browser. Uh, they had a really interesting project, and uh, I will say this at the outset, and the article itself, the people who wrote the article will say the same thing as I'm reading it. Um, don't do this. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess if you really want to, it's probably not super harmful, but uh, it's I'm not sure how effective it is either. But it's interesting uh, what they're doing here and kind of shows where we are today with tracking. So anyway, let me read this article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. And, you know, be prepared. These guys are a little snarky, uh, a little tongue-in-cheek. So uh, you'll, you'll catch the attitude from the, from the get-go here. 
Well, this is one of the most bizarre internet stunts we've seen. In an effort to show you how advertisers snoop on your surfing activity, Mozilla is offering you a chance to pretend that you're someone else. The company has introduced an online project called Track This. And right here, parenthetically, it says, although we don't recommend, uh, although we don't recommend you go explore the link until you've read this article. Uh, if It's a website that lets you choose from four different personality profiles and then automatically surf for the kinds of websites that person might visit. The idea is to let, this, uh, let these sites fill in your browser with cookies and watch as advertisers start showing you commercials for things you have no interest in buying. Why? According to Mozilla, it's, quote, to bring that out-of-sight tracking front and center, unquote, and highlight to users of the Internet why they might want to block third-party tracking cookies. In other words, it's using it as a conversation starter to get people interested in the enhanced tracking protection that it introduced in version 67.0.1 of its browser earlier this month. So Mozilla told us, and this is quoting from Mozilla, it says, we wanted to illustrate how widespread tracking is and let people step into another character's advertising profile for a while to see how quickly shifts in their online behavior are being recorded and acted upon by marketers and companies on the web, unquote. Those who want to test out the service can choose from the following four personality types. One, hype beast. Uh, hype beast. I don't don't know if that's an actual word, but anyway, hype beast, a user obsessed with streetwear, sneakers, and the latest music. Number two, filthy rich, a moneyed up searcher looking for luxury brands, fancy cars, and exclusive clubs. Number three, doomsday prepper, a paranoid conspiracy theorist looking for supplies, evaluating bunkers, and accessing the latest crackpot stories. Or four, influencer, a vapid online approval minder, what a, what a phrase. Uh, approval minder. Searching for skincare routines, holistic remedies, astrology, and meditation apps. Uh, if you select one of the profiles and, tra- and press track this, it opens 100 tabs in your browser, inviting a torrent of cookies that, pers- uh, that persuade advertisers you fit one of these profiles. They'll then start showing you ads for Mylar blankets and flashlights or selfie sticks and uh, cherry lip gloss or whatever. So that's the end of the article. It goes on. Um, but the point is this. So <laughs> what they try to do is they they kind of created these personality profiles and they thought, okay, if I'm, uh, if I'm filthy rich or if I'm a doomsday prepper, what kind of websites am I going to frequent? What kind of things am I going to shop for? What am I going to be searching for in my search engine? And they, in your browser, when you click this button, immediately open up 100 different tabs, in other words, websites, 100 different websites, uh, searching for these things, looking for these things, going to certain websites, basically flooding your browser with a whole bunch of fake web surfing instances to try to kind of fool all the online trackers that all of a sudden you're madly interested in, in whatever these things are that these personality types would be interested in. The theory being that once you do this and you kind of apparently go on this spree of looking at all this information in a very focused topic personality type area that all these cookies you now took on will should color the advertising that you get when you go to other websites at least for a little certain amount of time now uh, i think even this article i didn't read the whole thing it goes on to say that they tried this and didn't see a lot of effectiveness Um, and of course if if you're using firefox which has the built-in tracking protection uh, unless they've done something special to somehow disable your privacy settings when you click this button, or maybe they maybe when you go to the site, maybe they recommend that you turn off these settings. Um, because by default with Firefox, which is one of the reasons that, that I push Firefox so heavily, 
it's got built-in tracking protection and it's, and it's not accepting all these cookies anyway. The point being that you could open 100 tabs and it shouldn't matter because none of these sites should be able to track you. And then none of these advertising companies and data brokers would be getting the information that they were telling you're going to get. So it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, but, I, you know, uh, the point that it's making, and I think it's kind of interesting, is that that's the modern world we live in. And when you go to visit these sites, and it's no coincidence that when you go to Google and you search on brand new 2019 or 2020 Nissan Sentra or Ford pickup truck, or you start looking for medical advice or whatever, then you go to some other site and you start seeing ads that are really creepily similar to that thing. You know, like, do you need a doctor Uh, or looking to buy a truck Um, kind of thing? Because that is how things work. Now, if you're using Firefox and you're using kind of the, the plugins and the settings that I recommended, that should never happen because you're blocking all those cookies by default. They shouldn't be tracking you. Um, and if, actually you're, if you're using Lubuck origin, you're not seeing the ads anyway. So, um, anyway, but it, it's interesting, you know, just as a kind of a thought experiment, I think from that expense and certainly as a PR stunt, uh, from Mozilla, uh, to do this. And yeah, you know, so, you know, kudos to them for, I guess, finding a unique way, a creative way to draw attention to modern tracking. All right, last up on our main story today is about an article I just read in Forbes uh, about the U.S. once again, and this is not new, uh, looking to ban encryption technology that it, basically meaning law enforcement and, uh, and the intelligence agencies, cannot break. So again, remember that encryption is based on math um, and the whole kind of the way, the, the kind of the linchpin to how encryption works, which is the ability to take something readable, something plain text, something you and I could just you know read, scramble it into something completely illegible, something that uh, no matter, you can't make sense of, heads or tails, so it's complete noise. You, you, it looks like total gibberish, but in such a way that I can then reverse that again and bring it back to the original plain text and read it normally. That's what we do when we encrypt communications, for example. So if I'm sending you a message on my phone, I can read it. I just typed it. When I hit send, actually, when I, when I hit send, it encrypts that message before it ever leaves my phone, for example, or computer, makes it gibberish, and then sends it across the internet. Doesn't matter who sees it at that point, because it's gibberish. You couldn't, you can't undo it uh, until it gets to the far end, to your recipient. And on that device, their phone, let's say, uh, it's decrypted. Uh, and then all of a sudden they can read it just like you typed it. But every place in between, all the digital ones and zeros and things that went across the internet are completely unintelligible. Now, it is just math. And if if you didn't encrypt that properly, if you did a poor job with the math or the implementation of the math, um, then a sufficiently sophisticated attacker with uh, enough computing power could basically guess the encryption password or the encryption key uh, and reverse it. What the U.S. government, and actually many governments, the U.K. and the Australia have already done this, by the way, uh, and it's just kind of coming online, so it's I'm not really sure how well, how well that's going yet. But they want to say, okay, well, you, you can have math, you just can't have good math. Uh, so if you're going to encrypt something, then you need to do it in a poor enough way that our government, with their vast money and computing power and skills could decrypt it. Now, what they're kind of implying is that we're, we're gods. We're super human beings here. We, we can do things that other people can't do. Regular run of the mill hackers, 
Um, so therefore, we'll, we'll, just, we'll find that sweet spot. We'll find that area where uh, it's good enough for most things and your average hacker is not going to be able to decrypt you, but we can. Uh, that never works. Okay, actually, I'm kind of I'm kind of burying the lead here. Let me actually read you from this article, and then we'll I'll go back and I'll uh, tell you a little bit more. So from Forbes, it says, End-to-end encrypted messaging is a major issue for law enforcement. As the world shifts from easy to crack, for governments, cellular SMS messaging to various flavors of IP messaging, such as WhatsApp, iMessage, Signal, and Wicker, governments are exploring their options. The challenge is that such services are provided by technology companies mostly based in the U.S., making them to a large extent out of the reach of, uh, from law lawmakers elsewhere. The messaging services run, quote-unquote, over the top, meaning that they're not tied directly to the provider of the network or the phone, all of which means that the power broker here, as in most things tech, is the U.S. government, which is why when Political reported that, quote, senior Trump administration officials met on Wednesday, June 26th, to discuss whether to seek legislation prohibiting tech companies from uh, using forms of encryption that law enforcement can't break, unquote, it was of real significance. And then further quoting, a provocative step that would reopen a long-running feud between federal authorities and Silicon Valley, unquote. Uh, and yes, it is a long-running feud. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, then it quotes um, the CEO of Wicker, which is another... It's kind of, I, I've been promoting Signal uh, as a secure end-to-end -end messaging app. Wicker is another one. Um, I don't think it's as trustworthy because it's not fully open source, but that's a different story. But anyway, this, so they're interviewing this CEO from Wicker, and he says, quote, technology is moving fast and privacy needs to move with it. There are, these are all completely legitimate, understandable, and even predictable concerns coming from law enforcement and elsewhere, unquote. Uh, Politico cited several unnamed sources in reporting that the encryption challenge, which the government calls, quote-unquote, going dark, was the focus of a National Security Council meeting Wednesday morning that included the number two officials from several key agencies, unquote. The discussion focused on the lockdown of messaging apps, billed as a privacy and security feature, which quote, frustrates authorities investigating terrorism, drug trafficking, and child pornography, unquote. And let me just stop long enough here to say that um, these are the examples they always bring out, right? This is worst case scenario. It's the, you know, there's a nuclear nuclear bomb somewhere in the city with a time bomb going off, and we need to do everything we can to, you know, we need to have access to everything to, to help save people's lives. You know, they always bring out the, you know, the, the most egregious, types of situations to curry favor with people to say, oh, yeah, I guess I'd like you to be able to do that. So I guess I'll give up my privacy. Anyway, sorry, I already digressed. Let me go back to the article real quick, and then I'll, then I'll get back to my opinion. The challenge for governments, the U.S. included, is that the privacy of messaging has become a central theme in the ongoing debate around privacy, data security, and information integrity. And then uh, they're talking again with the CEO, and he says, we hope there's a really productive dialogue in problem solving. And, and in his view, uh, lines in the sand and folded arms on the part of governments need to be avoided with China, North Korea, and Iran, quote unquote, not the countries we want to emulate as far as technology is concerned. Uh, the example of WeChat in China is especially relevant where authorities monitor messages, message traffic on a fairly open basis with immediate sanctions for misbehavior. As the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square approached, it was reported that WeChat users found, quote, keywords or pictures related to the event have been almost instantaneously deleted, with their posters sometimes summarily blocked. On the days of the anniversary itself, users were not even able to change their avatars, unquote. All right, so the article goes on. Um, 
uh, avatars, by the way, are the little pictures that represent you when you're on some of these messaging apps. Some of these apps, you can actually put a little picture of yourself that everybody sees when you get a message from them. Uh, it's, sometimes it's a picture, sometimes it's a funny image. Uh, and obviously, in, you know, when sometimes when these things roll around, and you've probably seen this on maybe Twitter and Facebook and other places, uh, those little avatars get changed to kind of go with something that's going on, like Pride Month. I know there's a lot of companies that put up rainbow flags as part of their avatars. You know, so with Tenement Square coming up, what they were basically afraid of is that people would take that little opportunity to, you know, put in a dig uh, at the Chinese government by putting some sort of a, you know, pro-freedom, pro-privacy type uh, icon. So when that anniversary rolled around, they basically disallowed the changing of your avatar for around that time period so that people couldn't do that. And that just get that should give you a, an idea of where this could go, uh, this slippery slope. When our government starts saying we need to be able to control communications, so there's uh, there's so many things to to unpack here. But let's start with a little bit of history. And I've mentioned this before, but we've been through this before. In the nine in the 90s, we had what we called the crypto wars, and that was when again the when you know emails and some other crypto technology was coming around. In fact, we talked to Phil Zimmerman, who is the creator of PGP or Pretty Good Privacy. He was part of those crypto wars back in the day because he created this encryption technology that let people communicate privately. Uh, they could encrypt messages that the government, if they intercepted, couldn't do anything with. And they didn't like that. And so we went through this before. And at the end of the day, while there was some, there were, there was a period of time when the, when the United States government treated encryption technology as a munition. Uh, that is, they classified it basically as sort of a military weapon and therefore used that qualification to restrict its export. And even in the United States, I think they restricted some of the, like the quality level. And it's usually in encryption, that's uh, the quality level is directly related to how big uh, the encryption key is. And that's because it's digital. The, the length of a key is in bits. Uh, so I think back in the day, 128 bits was like considered to be unbreakable. Um, but for anything foreign, they limited all exports to 40 bit, which is really weak. Um, and, you know, basically because they didn't want the bad guys there, in that case, foreign governments and terrorists and whatever to get a hold of this technology and have encryption that the government couldn't break. So they hobbled it intentionally and forced all U.S. companies creating this technology to weaken, severely weaken any encryption technology that was exported. Now, of course, it, again, it's just math. So let me point this out. All this stuff is based on well-known math. Outlawing encryption is, will be about as effective as outlawing algebra. Uh, you, you just can't do it. The, the, the genie's out of the bottle, the horse is out of the barn, the cat's out of the bag. This is, it, it's already game over. Um, you're not going to be able to to effectively ban this stuff. Uh, the code is already out there, and it's, it was, it's trivial at this point for someone to create a new encryption app that uses extremely strong encryption that the government couldn't crack. I mean, I don't know how I don't possibly know how they're really going to outlaw this. But kind of circling back to the '90s, uh, we actually that whole 40-bit encryption thing was was a problem for a long time because it's, it became the lowest common denominator. So if you were ever working with anybody um, outside the U.S., or in some cases a hacker who opportunistically would say, because the way this, I know there's a lot of technical stuff here, I'm sorry, but the way this technical, the way this encryption thing work is the two sides that want to communicate do this little, they call it a handshake, it's a protocol handshake, where 
you know, so I say to you, I want to encrypt something to you, and here's what I'm capable of doing. And then the other side says, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm, here's what I'm capable of doing. Here's, here's the best thing that the two of us both support. And so all a hacker had to do when, when 40-bit encryption was available somewhere was kind of get in the middle and say, oh, yeah, oh, oh sorry, all I can do is 40-bit. And so that's, I guess that's what we'll have to do. Uh, and then draw, you know, bring the communication level way down to the point where eventually those hackers were able to break that encryption. So we actually dealt with those kind of things for a long time. This called downgrade attacks. So even though we kind of thought we'd won the crypto wars, eventually that uh, that were, those restrictions were taken off. And I mean, certainly as banks and things started going online, encryption was crucial. And it is today by far. I mean, uh, you know, financial transactions, you know, investment transactions, medical records being transmitted, uh, when you're talking to your bank, when you go online, all these, all these communications, uh, today are, we just take them for granted that they are secure. Um, but if the government gets its way, it wants to make those, that encryption breakable by them. And, if, and here's the thing, if it's breakable by them, it's also breakable by other nation states, China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, um, you know, the quote unquote bad guys. So you here's the next tenet is that you can't make a backdoor that only good guys can go through. First of all, who gets to define who the good guys are? Um, second, if you, if you make it weak for, for one, you make it weak for all. Um, so that just doesn't work. So, you know, they've, they've talked about wanting backdoors or they wanted to hobble the encryption. So it doesn't work. None of those solutions are going to work. Now they've come up with something more clever, and this is actually what they're trying to propose in the, in the UK and what they may end up coming out with here. Uh, and that is what is being referred to as a ghost protocol. And here's basically how it works. So if I'm having a encrypted communication with you, if you and I are exchanging end to end encrypted messages, they're not encrypted. And let's say we're using our phones. So on my phone, it's unencrypted. And then when I go to send, it's encrypted, sent across the internet to the other guy's phone. When he hits that guy's phone, it's decrypted. And now he can read it. So it's key to understand that it's actually unencrypted on the phone. If you had access to the device, you could read all the messages. Now you can't, you can't intercept them in transit and decode them, decrypt them. But if you could get access to either device, either end of that conversation, those messages are decrypted on the device. Now it's a little trickier than that because usually the devices themselves have encrypted hard drives. And usually this, if the guys are really protecting their privacy, they've got a pin code or a face ID or a thumbprint or something on that device that locks the device. And if you, unless you can get past that, you can't read the messages. But then there's these companies like Celebrite. There's a company called Celebrite. And if you might remember them from the San Bernardino case when Apple went against the FBI uh, and the FBI said, hey, Apple, you've got to, you know, we need you to start hobbling your encryption so that when this happens again, we can get into the device. Um, but it turns out in the background, they didn't really need to do that. They were just using this as a very sympathetic case to try to set a precedent. In the background, they contracted with this company that we assume that the company was Celebrite. There's, I don't know if that's ever been established, but this company called Celebrite advertises, Hey, we can break any iPhone. We can crack any iPhone. Uh, so they paid money to these guys. They cracked the iPhone and they got them information they needed. Anyway. So, so it's one, one communication. This normally, now you can have encrypted group chats as well. And what happens there is it's an individually encrypted one-to-one uh, -one message. If I'm talking with three other people, what's really happening under the, under the covers is that I'm having an encrypted conversation with person one, person two, and person three, all with different keys, all encrypted separately. And the phone makes it look seamless. It makes it look like they're all 
just happening as a group chat. What the UK is wanting to do is they want to insert a ghost person. And of course that person is, is them. They want to put another end on the end to end encryption. They want to add a BCC or a blind carbon copy, uh, except that it's blind, not only to the sender, it's not only to the recipient, it's blind to the sender as well. So if I'm, if I'm talking with, um, if Bob and, uh, and Alice are having a conversation, then Mallory, this in this case would be the FBI or the NSA or whoever gets a carbon copy of everything that is sent between the two of them. And basically what that means is that the message app, which normally would show you if you were in a group chat, they would show you that you're talking to two people only shows you one person. And there's another person in that conversation that you can't see and that they are lying to you about because the device would have to know. So this would be FBI or somebody going to Apple and say, okay, well, we need to tap these guys' conversations. So instead of breaking the encryption or hobbling the encryption that allows them to talk in a way that we can't intercept, instead, on one of the two devices, we want you to insert another recipient, us. Uh, and, and when that phone is encrypting a message to send between Alice and Bob, Alice sends something to Bob, it's also sending another version of that to Mallory and just not telling the user that they're doing that. This is the ghost protocol that they're talking about. So this is interesting in a couple of ways. So it, so it, it neatly skirts the whole breaking or hobbling uh, or restricting encryption, um, which is good. It, so at least now, you know, we don't have that problem. Nevertheless, um, it still has a whole host of other problems. All the tech companies, Apple included, uh, and, and others have come out against this policy. Um, basically, it, it, it means that they have to create malicious messaging apps. They have to lie to their users. Uh, and then upon request, and who knows what that might mean in terms of a warrant or, or, or what they would have to sabotage the communications of some of their users. And they obviously don't want to do that. They want to be trusted as Apple in particular, uh, but nobody wants to be in that position. And, but then you've got to realize that who gets to, to, to make this request and then when, what circumstances will be allowed. Now, you know, in China, for example, uh, or Russia, or some of these other, um, you know, more boldly, baldly authoritarian regimes, the government is is going to be all over that. And in fact, you can assume that in places like China, they're going to say, okay, well, just put us in every conversation. No warrant, just mass surveillance. And, you know, because then Apple will have created this possibility, they will now be subject to doing this all over the globe. And, you know, and so maybe what ends up happening is in the U.S. you require a warrant, but maybe you don't need a warrant if you're in Australia, uh, UK, I don't know, uh, Mexico, I don't know, Canada, I don't know, some other country where, you know, perhaps the laws are different, or maybe they only apply to their citizens and not to other people's citizens. So now the FBI, if they can't get a warrant in the US, maybe they go to Canada and say, okay, well, we want you to, you know, if one of the guys, one of the subscribers is from Canada, um, or I don't know, find some way around the system by going to a jurisdiction where they can get this wiretapping done without a warrant. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit reaching for straws here. I probably should get somebody from the EFF or somebody on here to talk about the real true legal aspects of this, but it still is a huge can of worms at a Pandora's box. And it, um, while it does kind of sidestep the whole breaking encryption, which is just a non-starter, uh, it still has a lot of problems. But here's the other part. They're saying that we're going dark. They're saying that they can no longer intercept these communications. And of course, they bring out the most sympathetic cases they can, which are these heinous crimes 
child pornography, you know, terrorism, all these things that, you know, everyone's knee jerk reaction is, oh yeah, I'll give up my privacy for that. Sure. I want to be safe. I, I want to protect kids, but okay. Let me, let me post it to you this way as a thought experiment. This is just a technology. It can be used for good or bad. And just like, let's say, I don't know, guns. Um, what if, uh, and you know, and they, they've talked about having guns now with smart sensors so that they can only be fired by the owner. So it's going to have some sort of a chip in it. And maybe it reads the fingerprint as you hold the trigger or, or something. Somehow it identifies it's being held by its owner and will only be fired when the owner fires it. Okay. Sounds like an interesting safety feature. Let, let's, let's just stipulate that that works, that that technology exists today and it works. Now, what if the government said, okay, well, we don't want even the owner to be able to fire on a police officer or somebody in the military or politicians. So the government wants to come in and say, okay, you can fire your gun whenever you want, except for the people we don't want you to fire on. This is the United States. Can you, can you imagine the NRA supporting such a thing uh, or gun owners in general? And, you know, for people that fundamentally believe in the right to bear arms in the United States, that would be an infringement on those rights. And I would think that a lot of people would, uh, who are gun rights advocates would not appreciate that. Um, maybe it's a poor analogy to make, but my point, I guess, is, is that privacy is inherently good for everybody. And I, yes, I realize it could be abused. I realize it could be used for nefarious purposes, but we act differently when we're being surveilled. And as the first thing I talked about in this program said, we are, we are purposefully, when we know, or we believe that we're being watched when we're, you know, we believe we're in a panopticon, we self-censor, we change our own behavior. Uh, we try to be boring. We try to be non-confrontational. We try to be uninteresting and that is not good for any democracy or any society. Um, Glenn Greenwald has a Ted talk about this and I've mentioned it many times. Um, but if you've never seen it and despite all my pushing you to see it, uh, now might be a good chance to go check that one out. Uh, just search for Ted talk and Glenn, Glenn Greenwald on privacy. And by the way, he was one of the journalists that Edward Snowden brought in to help him reveal what he revealed. The other thing I might recommend you do is go read the book 1984 by George Orwell. In the book, if you haven't read it already, there's these telescreens that are ever present. They're in your house. Uh, they're two-way video, two-way audio. You can't turn them off. You can't change the channel. Uh, that's kind of where we're headed with mass surveillance and the government knows that if it knows what everybody's up to at all times and, and whatever people will guard the behavior and will toe the line. Now what Orwell got wrong and where he, where he missed it was that we actually, these telescreens aren't televisions. They're not, they're not sitting in our rooms. They're in our pockets. These things we carry with them willingly everywhere we go. And they're way worse than any telescreen. Not only does it, could it possibly record audio and video, it records our location and all of our messaging and our photos and videos and, you know, everything we search for on the web and yada, yada, yada. So I'm calling this Big Brother 2.0. And we really need to be careful with this. We obviously it's a sensitive subject. I do understand why law enforcement and intelligence agencies feel the need to have access to this information, but we've got to all keep in mind, this is really the golden age of surveillance. Yes. This one particular element communications across the internet are potentially unviewable. 
That doesn't mean that the communications at each of the devices isn't viewable. We could still, you know, with a warrant, we can get access to the phone uh, and we can get the information there. We can actually assign human beings to, to trail people like we used to do. Uh, it's just that it, it curbs mass surveillance. It, individual surveillance, it's never been a better time to do individual surveillance than it has been now. We can, it's amazing how much information we can get on people. So we're not going dark. This is actually the golden age of surveillance. This is a very small corner of, a, as Phil Zimmerman, who was on the show, liked to say, you know, if, if you look at surveillance opportunities today, it's like a massive, beautiful 4K television screen, and they're complaining about a couple pixels that are black, basically meaning that their view of what's going on is unprecedented in terms of how much information they have. But yes, there are a couple areas that are, that are still protected and um, I think still need to be protected. So what can we do leading to the tip of the week? Uh, I've rambled long enough. Um, so you might want to read my article on this. If you haven't already, it's called big brother 2.0. It's on my website uh, on, on the blog, firewalls, don't sub dragons. Uh, I kind of go through the same arguments there. So you can kind of just skim through that. But at the bottom, I've got a link to my data privacy day checklist. And in that checklist, I've got, for instance, links to the, uh, the Glenn Greenwald talk. You can find it there. And also go through many things that you can do to protect your privacy, um, which I've talked about um, over and over on this show. But it's kind of good to have a resource there. The other thing I might recommend, and I think I recommend this in the article, in the Data Privacy article, article as well. Uh, you know, If you're not into reading uh, 1984 by Orwell, you might check out Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. Uh, it's a fun read. It's actually it's a kind of enjoyable thriller fiction that's sort of a, a modern day take on this. And it would probably bring the subject a lot more closer to home because it has to do with a terrorist attack and, and um, overreach by the U.S. government and kind of a crackdown on privacy and things like that. So uh, it's a good read. Uh, it actually brings in a lot of these encryption, toxin, uh, encryption topics that I've talked about. Uh, it's not very long. So I would definitely want to check that out if you just want to kind of a fun way to learn about this topic. But uh, if my tip of the week, I guess, and I've said this before, is you know kind of two two part: get informed and get involved. So get informed is kind of what I've been telling you about. Go to the website, check out, you know, read the blog, read some of these articles, watch these videos. There's a, a couple essays there that are interesting to read. Uh, that if I haven't convinced you, uh, these might help. And um, and then get involved. And there's a lot of ways you could do that. First and foremost, obviously, pay attention to what your representatives and your uh, potential candidate representatives are saying ar around privacy. Go to these town halls, ask the tough questions, um, see what they say. Uh, and then, you know, depending on how much time and effort you have, you can, you can get active. You certainly, you know, as these stories and things come up, share them with your friends on your social media, spread these things around and educate other people. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, uh, there's a lot of groups out there that are out there protecting your rights right now, and they're doing a wonderful job, and they are nonprofits, and they take money donations. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, is, is a great one, one that I've, um, obviously, I've talked to a lot of those folks here. Uh, but the ACLU, uh, ProPublica, EPIC, that's EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, uh, uh, CDT, the Center for Democracy and Technology, there's plenty of groups out there, and if you don't, you know, have the time to really be active yourself, but you want to make a difference, you know, send these guys a little bit of money. Doesn't have to be a lot, um, but send these guys a little bit of money, and they can, uh, and they already are doing it for all of us. All right, that'll wrap up our show for the week. Uh, thanks for allowing me to get up on my soapbox there a little, a little bit. Obviously, it's something I care a lot about, and I hope you do too. 
Uh, if nothing else, again, just kind of get informed so at least you understand what the issues are, and then you can make you know, draw your own conclusions. You don't have to listen to my opinion. Uh, but at least understand what the issues are, and I could, hopefully I can at least do that and, and bring you these topics and bring you these stories that kind of outline what's going on and make you aware. And coming up in the next two, the next two shows, are, it's a two-part interview uh, with a guy named Richard Stokes. He's the CEO and founder of Winston Privacy. Winston, of course, being the main character in George Orwell's 1984, uh, so very relevant. He's got a really cool box uh, that he is selling. And I'll tell you how, to, how you can research this and maybe buy one for yourself that helps you protect your privacy at, at home and does some actually quite amazing things. It's a really kind of an interesting approach to this. So, um, it's not really an infomercial. We'll talk about all sorts of things, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's an interesting product and I want to make sure that I'm, you know, giving voice to some of these things and highlighting some of the places where companies are, you know, putting their necks out here and putting and trying to put their money where their mouth is and offer products that um, people can use to protect their privacy. So anyway, that'll be really interesting. I promise uh, it'll be a two-part interview for the next two weeks. Stay tuned for that. And that's going to wrap up our show. Uh, as always, uh, I'd love for you to put a nice review on the podcast that makes makes it so other people see it as well. So if you don't mind, go to iTunes, uh, which is probably the most popular place for people to find podcasts and drop a nice review out there for me. I would really appreciate that if you haven't done that already. Uh, and that'll do it for this week. Uh, until next week, stay safe out there, everybody, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.